Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I was having this thought of, I don't really want to go back to architecture and well, maybe I'll become a yoga teacher because I was into that yoga, which I learned. But yeah, I wasn't even thinking about yoga teaching yet until I, I read that book. And it, and it said two things. The way he explained it was to find your dharma or to live your dharma rather. You find something which you're talented about. You're absolutely talented and unique at that one thing and couple that with how you can serve humanity. And that's it. And then I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not doing architecture because it doesn't resonate. It doesn't feel that fulfilling and that much purpose for me. And I didn't know. Then I was like, I'm going to be a yoga teacher. My current girlfriend at the time, who I was spending a lot of time with her family, they were kind of like pretty high class family. They were both lawyers and she was in law school. And as soon as I started mentioning like, oh, I'm going to leave, they're like, really? Oh, really? Like, you can't leave university? My parents weren't as much like that. My mum a little bit, had a little bit of fear. But my father was very passive and like very supportive of any choice I made and was very calm. But yeah, I read that and I, and, I, and I expressed it to the doctors and they just, yeah, I felt strong about it. And then they said, come learn with us, you know, we'll teach you. And I didn't think much about it. It wasn't even such a click. It wasn't like a bing moment. It wasn't like that. It was just like, sure, I'll do it. And he's going to start reading this book and come here. And then that was the beginning of that. Hello, friends, and welcome back to The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. Today, I'm in conversation with a gentleman by the name of Dylan Smith. I actually met Dylan many, many years ago when he was just in high school, and since then, Dylan has become a world-renowned Ayurvedic practitioner. Ayurveda is the ancient Indian form of healthcare using mostly natural herbs and remedies to heal the body, and it often takes one years of study with one's teacher in order to be considered an Ayurvedic master. And Dylan was on a career track to becoming an architect when he accepted an invitation to join his mom for an Ayurvedic treatment in India, and it was there that he had an experience that basically became a turning point in his life. And then shortly after that, he pivoted from the architecture path to becoming an Ayurvedic practitioner under the tutelage of his master teacher, Dr. Raju. Dylan eventually became a certified Ayurvedic practitioner and holistic health educator. His first treatment clinic was actually in his bedroom at his parents' house. 
because he was barely 20 years old. And he has since then moved out of the bedroom and he now has a proper clinic where he teaches patients from all over the world how to effortlessly integrate the foundational Ayurvedic techniques into their daily life so that they can thrive. Dylan has also become an expert at treating stress, fatigue, digestive issues, and back issues. We talk about his fascinating process of diagnosing exactly what's going on in the body, just using his three fingers. And in addition to doing a deep dive into Dylan's origin story, we unpack the Ayurvedic perspective on many fascinating aspects of health. We also talk about how to find the right Ayurvedic doctor, why Ayurveda prioritizes the use of oils. We talked about the Ayurvedic perspective on sunlight and why it's important to eat with the sun and not to eat out at restaurants too much and a lot more. If you've ever been interested in exploring more ancient forms of healing, you'll find this conversation fascinating. And if you haven't been interested, you'll still be inspired by the story of this young man finding a path that resonated and being willing to give up a path that probably looked more successful on paper in order to pursue one that felt more aligned with his heart. So get ready for another informative and inspiring episode as I introduce you to Mr. Dylan Smith. Dylan, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast live from India. Yeah. It's good to see you. Since yesterday, we actually recorded <laughs> an interview on your podcast, and, and now we're doing the little switcheroo, and I get to ask you questions. So I'm super excited about learning more about your story and how it informed your current work in Ayurveda, which we'll talk a bit about in the second half of the interview. So thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, man. It's an honor to be here. And as I said yesterday, I'm just so happy to connect with you. And on this level. Yeah. And, you know, I'm looking at you now on Zoom here. You're very much a man. You know, you got the facial hair, you got your muscles and everything developed. And because you're sitting there with no shirt on. In India, <laughs> and we'll talk about why in a Is little bit. Be Is this going to be a video? <laughs> <laughs> but I met you initially as a young man. You were, I think, 14 or 15 years old when I was happened to be in Australia. And, and I had been seeing your mom around at some cafes. And I think she invited myself and one of the other meditation teachers over to meet your family. And there's a lot that's transpired since then. You kind of grew up in a meditation-centric household, but I'm not sure how early on that was happening. So just talk a little bit about your introduction to the Vedas and all of that as a young person growing up in Bondi and, and, and how your parents kind of got into it and how they introduced you all. Is it just you or you have a sibling? I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Yeah. How did they introduce you all to this knowledge? Uh, I learned to meditate when I was six and it actually happened. I fell off a tree. I was climbing a tree and I fell off and I hit my head. I fractured my skull and I was in hospital. I remember it very well. I remember being in hospital at the kids' hospital on my birthday and they had like the people dressing up and coming into the hospital. It was, it was pretty severe, but luckily nothing at the moment happened badly. But then my mother was scared, obviously, and she was meditating then. So she went to her meditation teacher, Tom Knowles, and suggested, what can we do to help? And, and Tom said, look, usually we don't start them until seven years old. I think it was at that time or seven or eight, the kids meditating. But he said, but this will really help. 
And, but I wanted to do it with my brother as well, who's one and a half years younger than me. So that was another exception. He, he must have been four at the time. So we both learned to meditate together. And I remember very clearly going to the meditation teacher's office and giving him a drawing, which he still has. He tells me all the time. He says, I've still got your thing. I don't usually keep them, but yours I've had. Because for children, when you learn to meditate, you don't pay, you, you give an art piece or something like that. So that's how I learned to meditate. And then it went on and I didn't grow up in such like a meditation household where they were very into it. My parents still aren't like, it's not like a Hare Krishna household, which I see other people of like, they're fully into it and doing all this other stuff. But definitely we honored our parents and their meditation times. Me and my brother and sister, we knew like mom's meditating. Okay. We don't disturb her. And that was always there. And as a child, I didn't meditate twice a day. And even as teen, a young teenager, I didn't like sit down to meditate so much. Sometimes it was on the way to soccer. My parents would be, guys, meditate, you'll get better at the game. And we'd, me and my brother would sit and do it. But it was always having that word of wisdom, which they call it, was always there to pick up on in times of stress. And it's not like, okay, I'm stressed, I got to pick it up, but it would just come spontaneously as a kid. So, for example, I remember things like getting a vaccination at school. I would be stressed by the needle. I would just pick up on it automatically or putting my feet into a hot bath when it's really hot and I needed like ease myself into it. I would pick up on my mantra. And in retrospect, I'm very grateful for, for having that. And then kind of as a teenager, it died off. I didn't use it as much. And I then went to India when I was around 19 or 1920 to, on a gap year, like most of us do in Australia after finishing high school. We generally work for six months. And so I was a laborer at a building sites. And then we'd go traveling for six months and spend all that money. And I went to India. So I traveled Europe for two and a half months on a real shoestring budget, like malnourished, not eating well, not consuming toxic substances. And then I met my mother who was going to India regularly, annually, at least once a year for her breast cancer. She went there to heal through Ayurveda. And Ayurveda is one of the branches of the Veda, of that body of knowledge which governs the laws of nature of which you teach Vedic meditation. This was like the Vedic medicine. And, and so she like invited me to go spend and it was so good because I came from Europe being malnourished to like being so nourished in this Ayurvedic center. And that's kind of like introduced me, but still I, I didn't really take it on. I remember after the Panchakarma, which is an Ayurvedic detox and rejuvenation program that I did with my mother, we both went to Rishikesh and while she was doing other stuff, I would go and find the sadhus and want to smoke chillium. Like that's not a good thing to do straight after Panchakarma when my system's so clean. So I still wasn't into it, but then it was the next year that my my girlfriend at the time wanted to try this panchakarma, which my mother was always talking about. Well, let me run back. The first one, I learned yoga. I learned yoga asanas and pranayama, breathing exercises. And after learning that, I was really hooked. I was practicing like two hours a day in the morning while traveling India. I was still doing other toxic stuff like substances, but I was still doing this two-hour yoga. I loved it. It was the first time I've, I've done it. And then when I got back to Australia, I said, okay, I'm ready to learn to meditate again. And I went to our local teacher, who you know, Lamor Babai, who's one of the teachers in Sydney, Australia, and said, okay, I'm ready. And I did it. And I was kind of hooked ever since. And then since then, as anyone who experienced meditation, and then I'm sure you see light in your students, 
just gradually the toxic habits and substances start diminishing as the light prevails. And I started doing less of the things and toxic relationships, everything started fading away. And I then again went to India with my mother and I didn't know what to do. I was studying architecture. I didn't like it. I learned about Dharma for the first time, you know, what the most evolutionary thing you can be doing in one of Deepak Chopra's books. And I said, okay, I definitely don't want to go back to study architecture because I want to do something more meaningful. And and I expressed that to the doctors there at the clinic. And they said, oh, come study with us. We'll teach you. And I didn't really think much about it. I just did it. So, that's kind of how I got into it. And since then, I was studying. So, I want to go back to your younger years. You learned with Tom Knowles initially when you were a kid. So, what was your impression of Tom? He's an older man at the time. You were a six-year-old. What was that like for you? To be honest, I don't really have much of a... The memory didn't stick of him as a person. He was just this like Mm -hmm. quiet old man in a room, a very quiet and peaceful room who just gave me this word Mm -hmm. and gave me some instructions from memory. It would have taken 10 minutes or less and it was out. So, I was just like, cool. And it was a very neutral memory. It was a very neutral impression, but I think it did... In retrospect, it, it, it went in on the subtle because I used that technique on the subtle. It was more about the technique. I don't think I had such an impression of that teacher specifically. But as a kid growing up, when Tom would come tour Australia annually, we were kids and I was hanging out with his kids and it was all these people were like kind of worshipping this guy and, and really into him. And it was just really fun hanging out with him and, and his kids. He just seemed like a really cool guy. He was surfing. He would let his kids do whatever the, they want with their skateboarding <laughs> and listening to jazz music. So, he was just like a regular dude for me. What was your impression of the meditation technique that you had learned? Was it something that was really different from what you were used to? Or was it kind of like, oh, this is interesting, but I'm not, you know, I'll do it when I feel like it, but it's not really delivering anything particularly profound in my young life. It wasn't profound. It was something that my parents gave me and I wasn't in so much gratitude or value. I didn't have much value for it. It just, I had it. It was like another curriculum. I used to do soccer. I used to do basketball. I used to do all these different stuff, swimming lessons. It was like, that's it. That's one of the things. And yeah, it's kind of a bit different and weird. And it's kind of nice. I get to sit quietly on the car. It's cool, but it was a more subtle implementation of it. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, 
and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Your dad's an architect, right? Yes. So were you being groomed to be an architect or was that something really you, were, was. you were pursuing? Yeah, no, I was pursuing. I definitely wasn't grooming. They were, my parents were never like that, thankfully, especially my dad. He's very easygoing. And, you know, his dad was also an architect. So I kind of chose that because I didn't know what else to do as a teenager. Your mom got diagnosed with breast cancer. What yeah. was that like in your family? Were they sure, okay, we'll just go to Ayurveda, sort it out? Or was it like <laughs> they real scared that their meditation practice really have to like get tested at that mm. time? Do you, do you remember any of that? I was around 16, 17, and they didn't tell us much as kids. I wasn't into medicine at the time, so I wasn't involved. Like now I'm very involved in her medical treatment. <laughs> I really didn't know anything. And it was, I didn't know anything about chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery, I really didn't know. So I didn't even know how like that much about cancer at that time. And I guess even then it was not as well known as a kid would know now. So it wasn't very strict. I mean, she chose to not do chemo and radio, but rather just to do surgery, double mastectomy, as well as Ayurveda. And that's, I think, a great choice now. And that's something that I work a lot with cancer patients with, with any intervention that they choose. But common thing is that choice of surgery only in terms of the allopathic treatment and supporting with other modalities. Do you remember as a teenager around that age, do you remember your parents indulging in Ayurvedic lifestyle growing up and did they introduce you to any of that or was it just like these yeah. weird herbs and stuff that they were doing? <laughs> Yeah, so they weren't doing that much, but when my mom got the cancer, definitely it increased and mainly with the food. So she was cooking mm-hmm. a lot, that Ayurvedic food with the principles, cooking the fresh food, using spices a lot, turmeric a lot. She had her herbs, which I think I would have tried. She she would always bring back herbs for us that Dr. Raju, her doctor would give for us. She would look at our, he would look at our photo while he would feel her right pulse, her masculine side. Usually mm-hmm. for women, we feel the left, but he would look at a photo of me, for example, and feel her right pulse while she was thinking of me. It's called messenger pulse. And he would feel my pulse through her and prescribe mm-hmm. herbs. So she would bring back all these herbs for, for all the kids and more so us, not so much my father, because he wasn't as much into that. 
So definitely my memories are mainly in the kitchen, cooking a lot and giving us really good food. I've always loved my mom's food and more so than my brother. Um, he was not, as, not into the healthy food as much as I was, but I was just really, especially because I was a teenager, I was really grateful for the food I was getting. I would take them to all the places I would go. And I was also proud of it. I was proud of my mum's food and the other kids at school, whether they're eating out, they're getting the takeaway. It kind of seemed at the time as like, you know, prestige thing. I, I have money. I can buy stuff. It's better. It's nice to buy. You know, I've got that power, but I was really proud and I was always the unique kid as well at school. I still am, but I enjoyed that. You said your mom went to India at least once a year. What made this time different when you had your gap year? Was it purely just to have time on my hands or was there something else that inspired you to join her, this Panchakarma? Free accommodation and free food. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly, you know, I was really on a budget and I wanted to check out, I think, yeah, that was probably the main reason I went to India. And then I'm like, okay, I'm here. I'll, I'll do some traveling myself after. I was always going to Europe because that's the thing that my friends groups did mainly to Europe and not even Asia as much, but I being that kind of unique, different, I did want to go to Asia, like t- Southeast Asia. And, and that's why India, I didn't think about spiritual at all. I've always loved traveling and I especially loved traveling then. All right. So you're in this Panchakarma and you pick up this Deepak Chopra book, you're reading about Dharma and how did that strike you? What do you remember? Oh, it really struck me strong. It, it shifted a lot because I was think, having this thought of, I don't really want to go back to architecture and or maybe I'll become a yoga teacher because I was getting, you know, I was into that yoga, which I learned. But I, I wasn't even thinking about yoga teacher yet until I, I read that book. And it, and it said two things. The way he explained it was to find your dharma or to live your dharma rather. You find something which you're talented about. You're absolutely talented and unique at that one thing and couple that with how you can serve humanity. And that's it. And then I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not doing architecture because it doesn't resonate. It doesn't feel that fulfilling and that much purpose for me. And I, and I didn't know. Then I was like, I'm going to learn yoga, be a yoga teacher. My current girlfriend at the time who I was spending a lot of time with her family, they were kind of like, pretty high class family. They were both lawyers and she was in law school. And as soon as I started mentioning like, oh, I'm going to leave, they're like, Re- oh, really? Like, you can't leave university. My parents weren't as much like that. My mum a little bit, had a little bit of fear, but my father was very passive and like very supportive of any choice I made and, and was very calm. But yeah, I read that and I expressed it to the doctors and they just, yeah, I, I felt strong about it. And then they said, come learn with us. You know, we'll teach you. And I didn't think much about it. It wasn't even such a click. It wasn't like a bing moment. It wasn't like that. It was just like, sure, I'll do it. And he's going to start reading this book and come here. And then that was the beginning of that. So you mentioned Dr. Raju would read your mom's post and see a picture of you. Did he have special powers or is this all purely scientific? Both. The pulse diagnosis is the number one diagnostic method in Ayurveda. There's eight main ones. You can say like pulse diagnosis, urine examination, stool examination, tongue diagnosis, touching the body, listening to the body, to the sounds of the body, just looking at the body. But pulse is the number one because it has the ability to see very deep into the body and see deep into the whole physiology. 
well before even diseases manifest. So that's why it's so useful because it's very profound in the preventative medicine process. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the time, like I see my teacher and, and I tour different cities with my teacher around the world and we see hundreds of patients. So that's one of the great ways I've learned Ayurveda is just sitting in consultations with him. And he'll a lot of the time bring up something like lower back pain or lower back issues. And the patient will be like, no, my lower back's good. But he's like, no, but that's a weakness. So take these things to prevent that. So it's seeing on before in early on in the disease process, which Ayurveda is very good at. They see the disease process in six stages and the manifestation is only the fifth stage. And that's usually when the Western medicine kicks in. So it is scientific. It is actually a very technical way of pulse diagnosis. But also, yes, they definitely have siddhis, which we call, which is means divine human capabilities in reading the pulse and things like messenger pulse. Another example is, which I always give when I lecture pulse is once my friend came to visit me while I was studying in India. And when we feel pulse, like I also do pulse diagnosis, but I, I don't have any cities like them at all, not a fraction of it. But my friend came and we don't speak to the patient. We don't want to speak to them before. We just want to feel their pulse because we don't want them, what they say. Like if, if I have a patient come in and say, oh, I've got back issues or I've got insomnia, then I'm going to be looking for that in the pulse. I just want the pulse to speak to me because the pulse reveals what the body wants to heal. We can have mm-hmm. 10 people in the room with insomnia, but why is one is called because of hormones. One is because they have too much energy. One is because they have not enough energy. One is because of the neck. So the pulse reveals that. So my friend came and he just felt the pulse and he said, there are some eye issues on your maternal side. Take some herbs for that. And his mother's side had eye issues. And so that they can even differentiate between maternal maternal history. And there's so many stories about pulse, amazing stories as well. But yeah, so definitely they have cities. And, and what's interesting, Light, is during COVID, they would see sometimes 100, 150 people in a day because that's the beauty with pulse diagnosis. You don't need to talk to them much because you feel everything in 10, 20 seconds. So you don't need to ask questions about them. You know so much. So it's filled. And when they would have 200 people in a day, it's just pulse, write prescription, tell a few things next. And in COVID, they were doing all messenger pulses because they can't see the person in person. So they were doing it through Zoom, through video. And I've seen just from these three years and during the also doing the Zoom sessions with them, how much they've developed this city of Messenger Pulse specifically, which is awesome to see. I'm curious about Pulse reading. I've had this done before. From what I remember, they have their first three fingers on my the what's radial this, what's pulse. This, the radial pulse. If you had to give a layman's description, what exactly are they reading? Is it the frequency of Pulse, <laughs> how the blood is moving. Is it like a thousand things? Like how, it's like, how it's subtle is things. It's very mm-hmm. subtle and it's a thousand things. And it's when we teach pulse, we don't say, okay, look for this, feel this volume, feel this level. Like there's so many levels depending on how hard you press. Like we don't share so much or what part of the finger are you feeling? What type of pulse with which quality? Things like that. Really the way to learn pulse diagnosis is to experience it. And then from what you experience, you reveal to the teacher what you're experiencing. It's not, Mm -hmm. okay, now look for this. It's, oh, I recognize this pattern because I felt my pulse 
50 times a day for six months. So I notice after when I wake up, I feel this. And after meditation, I feel this. And before I need to go to the toilet, I feel this. What does that mean? And that's how you start learning. I'm curious, are there any sort of self-implemented pulse reading techniques 100%. that a layperson could try out like in real time? 100%. And during COVID, when people could not come to India for Panchakarma, which is the Ayurvedic detox and rejuvenation process, we have a clinic here and a lot of people come for their annual health. People couldn't do that. Plus, they couldn't get herbs. This is when that we couldn't receive shipments from India. And I said to Dr. Raju, what are we going to do? Like people, they're kind of suffering because they were like stressing out and feeling their health not being maintained by the Ayurveda. He said, we have to teach self-pulse. That's the way they're going to improve their health. And we're huge believers on teaching self-pulse. Feeling your own pulse is not so much a self-diagnostic method, which it can be later, but it's more a self-referral mechanism. Because the pulse contains the knowledge of your whole self, capital S, self, it brings you back to that. We especially prescribe self-pulse for people with panic attacks and anxiety attacks because as soon as they feel their pulse, it completely brings them into their body. And Maharishi Mahesh Yogi once said, one of the ways to unity consciousness, to experiencing that state of consciousness of unity is through self-pulse. And it is a profound thing. And it's the basis to learning pulse diagnosis. And it's very, very easy. And pulse diagnosis is very, very easy. Is there like a party trick technique you could walk us through right now for self-pulse? I mean, I can do it. Okay, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> if it's not, much, I, I totally understand. It's like when people ask me to teach them to lead a meditation. On, it's like the last thing I ever want to do on a, on a podcast. Okay. So I get it if, if you don't want to do it. I'm just well, curious. I better not just because there's some things to go through a little bit. But it is very easy and it can take five, ten minutes. And it's much easier with a camera. Mm. But... I'll leave it, but we do have a course on our website with Dr. Rajus who've taught it. And that was the one during COVID. And Mm -hmm. we made it very affordable because we just wanted everyone to do it. And it was amazing just, and to do it within the collective, that was a Mm -hmm. real thing that they emphasized is like, they wanted everyone to have even their videos on in the Zoom so that they Mm -hmm. could see. And it was an amazing collective experience. And we did feeling our own pulse together. Like it's very simple. It takes less than five minutes to learn how to feel your pulse, but then it's kind of how to use that initially. Mm. And we did certain, played certain pieces of sounds or music or looked at certain things while we were feeling to experience different fluctuations and then understand the patterns of how our environment and experiences can influence our pulse. And then that influences us. And we'll put some links to that in the show notes to the course. All right. So let's loop back to your story. Talk about the early days of of being a protege. Now that you've identified that this is something you want to take seriously, what was that like? Did you spend more time in India or I know you studied in Australia as well, but walk us through like the sort of montage of how that came together. Sure. So when they said to me, come study with us, they also said, don't study anywhere else, just study with us. (laughs) And I ended up studying in Australia to get certified for legal reasons and things. And it was good. But I, I did have to do some unlearning, which is one of the reasons they said that. And I went after this course, which was about one and a half years to get certified on. I went there and I just showed up and I, I used to spend half the year there for the, for the first few years of learning. And especially the first time, because it's really interesting. And this lasted for a few years of 
these guys, so they've been healing for generations. There's very few families that have that unbroken lineage of knowledge that have been healing for many generations. And they start learning at three years old, seven years old, and they're learning every day, every morning they've been woken up by their parents before sunrise because that's the time to absorb knowledge more profoundly and they would learn the things. So for me, it was really interesting because like I can't spend seven years full time here. Like I also, there's a need in this, in Australia, there's a need in the West. I need to learn. And I was very, very thirsty for knowledge. I was so thirsty. This is my nature as well. I'm like that pitta, like that fiery type that wants to learn. And for example, first year I was there, I was there for six months. I was getting like five to 10 minutes a day with a doctor. And that's also because they're extremely busy. They have a very busy clinic, but that's what I was getting. And it was a lot of testing as well of, of my devotion to the knowledge and to them. But those five to 10 minutes were so amazing, like so much better than, than months at my Ayurvedic course or hours and hours and hours of reading books. Like just the answers of the questions I had and just, it was so amazing. And they were testing me, you know, they, they're very kind and very pacifist people and very minimalistic in their words, especially my main teacher, one of the doctors there, because there's a, a couple brothers and a couple sisters. So, but yeah, it was just that little bit. And then every year they would give a bit more. And there were other people who came to learn as well. Like I remember one German lady in the early days, she also was similar age to me. And she also wanted to learn, but she didn't last. She couldn't take the lack that they weren't giving enough attention. They weren't giving us like time, but I kind of hung in there and made use of my time by reading and doing other things and practicing what I learned. And then it just got better and better every year. And it keeps getting better and better every year. And it will keep, I would be doing this probably for the, really for the rest of my life or until at least they're there to teach me. Talk a little bit about that approach to teaching and to learning in that sort of Eastern, ancient Indian fashion with the student and the teacher and them having to show a deserving power, etc. Yeah. So, look, I, I can't say too much because I wasn't in the, and I'm not really in, well, I, I, do, I do teach people, but I'm not like them. And yeah, it's checking how worthily this human is for the knowledge. But a big thing was how much are they doing the work themselves? Like how pure are their vessel? It wasn't like, okay, like I was thirsty for knowledge, definitely. Like they could see that. But also the big thing was like, how well are you doing your inner work? Essentially, when I was more physically sick, like I was, I had a chronic skin condition and still there to some extent, like when that was worse then like, they would give me less. But when I was physically bet well, and definitely mentally, emotionally, they would give me more. So it was a lot about, you know, a lot what I've learned with them is not so much intellectual knowledge, but getting capabilities to heal. We call it in Ayurveda Dunvantri, which is like healing capabilities. That's what I do now in my initiations, more than intellectual knowledge and certain practices to enhance capabilities to heal. So as you said, it's checking their worthy there and ready and you know, the sister was always more gentle and calm and more generous, like a mother. And and she would always say, like, Krishna 
is so proud of you in it. I'm like, whoa, I didn't know that. Like, he doesn't say anything to me. Like, and it made me feel so good. And, and then another thing would be like, when they would get angry, like they are these kafa, which means like they're big, friendly, oily. Like people say this Krishna Dr. Raju laughed more than Maharishi Mahesh Yogi did. His real name is Ananda Vardhan, which means increased amount of bliss. He's the most blissful person you will meet. His giggle, he laughs so much. He's like never negative. And then the more I kind of got closer to them and the more they trusted me and the more they gave me knowledge, sometimes he would be strict with me and tell me off. And that would be amazing in many ways. It was very hurt. Like it, it fully touched my heart and made me very upset at times because I love him like a divine love, a guru love. It's hard to explain it. It's not like any other love, not like a romantic love or a love or even a family member. It's different. And when he would tell me off, it would really, but it would also show to me that he can do that because we're close enough. And uh, someone else who he did it to would be really hurt and scared and, and would leave. So it's really nice when he does that. But also when he does that, I'm like, okay, I really have to behave in it. And it really teaches me to shift my behavior or my actions significantly. You end up opening up this clinic a couple of years later. Did you know that that was going to happen? Or in, in those initial days, were you just thinking, I'm just learning and healing myself and no. you know, just sucking up as much as possible? Did they anoint you as like, okay, you're ready to go help people? Or how do you know you're ready? It was always there. Like when I chose like, that first time when they said, come stay with us, I'm like, okay, this is going to be my profession because that's mm. for that time for me, that was an important part is, is Korea. You know, how do you sustain yourself financially? So it was always there. And I guess as soon as I finished my degree and I was certified, I was practicing and opening my clinic in my parents' house in a room, in my bedroom, not my bedroom, my old bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't really ever, because I was always, I always always started practicing, but they did annoy me with adding things. You could add certain things and practice certain things on patients. How are you financing all these trips to India? I was not paying rent for my clinic because <laughs> it was at my parents' mm -hmm. house. And I was living in my parents' house as well, I'm pretty sure, in a different room. So, mm -hmm. and I, I've always been a good saver. And, and still today, like, we live Ayurveda. Like, now my wife and I, like, our clinic's always mostly always been in our home because we're preparing herbs the night before for the next treatment till late at night. And we're we have to wake up early to prepare the herbs for that treatment. And like we see patients all day. So sometimes we have people for seven days of treatment, so they have to come on the weekend. So it's much easier always. And, and that's the same with my teachers. I mean, they do it to the nth degree. So it's always easy to work from home. So kind of our life, because we're always doing and our trips to India is for work. Like it's kind of like, we live with the business financially and that's kind of always been, it's just in the beginning days, it was more tighter budget and they would support me as well. The Rajus with that in different aspects. And by the end of your initial apprenticeship, cause you still go back and study with them, what you're doing right now. Had you gotten more FaceTime with them? Like beyond the 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It increased and increased and beautiful. Yeah. Now mm -hmm. there's a lot of good stuff which happened and a lot of time and, they come to Australia, I bring them there, and that's like a lot of time as well, but that's also work. But 
And you consider them to be your guru or is there one of them that's your guru? I consider them and that's something also that I'm dancing with. But yes, there's even more. There's three siblings now, one mm-hmm. of them passed. And the oldest brother, who's 20 years older, has three children who are all Vedas, who are all Ayurvedic doctors. And I consider them mm-hmm. all to be my guru. But there is one who I've definitely spent the most time, who's the head of the clinic. The other mm-hmm. ones were traveling a lot, going to Europe. So, yeah, he's the main. But, but I, you know, I touch their feet, all of them, when I see them. And mm-hmm. I would give a lot for them and do a lot for them. For the listener who's unfamiliar with that type of dynamic, the guru, student dynamic or disciple dynamic or devotee, what, I don't know what you, how you characterize yourself, but can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think to Western ears, it could be a little bit bewildering Absolutely. that you submit yourself you know, to someone's feet yeah. who's your guru. And that's something that I, the feet thing is like something which I did later. We'll talk about mm-hmm. that in a bit, but look, I understand that guru-student relationship is not common, especially in the West, and I'm very grateful for it. I think it's just my nature is, it just happened that way. Like, I fully wanted them, and I got attracted to them like a magnet, and I just wanted to be like them. I wanted to learn from them as, as much as I could, and I wanted to work with them in collaboration and in alliance. And for me to have I'll use the word guru, but you could say mentor or teacher. It's very supportive for my journey, for both my personal inner journey as well as the work that I do, because I don't have to make as many decisions. And there's also a dance of listening to your own inner guru or your own inner self. But it's like, for example, buying a house, which is something we want to do. It's me and my wife, we had some disagreement about a house. I wanted one. She she didn't want that one. And we just asked him and he decides. <laughs> it can kind of be easy like that. But um, it's just, yeah, someone that I, I see just want to respect as much as I can and and honor and give back to him. And him is essentially giving to people. That's all, like, that's one thing my teachers are, like, they're the utmost about dharmic people. They just want to work. They have very unhealthy lifestyle because all they do is see patients and prepare herbs and sleep at ridiculous hours, even miss meals. And I don't want to be like that. It's not, I don't want to be everything which they are. And even they recognize these bad things, like they don't want to pass it to their children who were like 12 years old, who were becoming doctors because they're afraid that their children are going to not want to do this because of how unsustainable some of the, their life is. So, there's there's a whole dance there. But yeah, it's just the teacher is like that. And the touching the feet thing is something which I like tradition and I like culture. I love India. I've spent so much time here and I just, I love indigenous cultures, indigenous Australia. So, I kind of learn these things and then I learn the essence of them. So, the touching feet, it's a common thing in India. It's, it's a sign of respect and the feet have like the energy of the person. It goes out through the feet. Our energy goes out. So, some gurus even, they don't let people touch their feet because it kind of, they take their energy away. Like Maharishi Mahesh Yogi is your teacher's teacher, my teacher's teacher. He would never let anyone touch his feet because for him, it'd be like a draining of his energy. Even my, mm. the oldest doctor, Raju, 
he doesn't really like people touching his feet, but I still can, luckily, sometimes. And sometimes you kind of play with it. But I touch with three of my fingers, which are the three fingers which we feel the pulse, which kind of give the energy. And then I touch that on the, the center point of their top of foot, which is the heart of the foot. It's a vital point, which we call marma point. It's where acupuncture points come from. So, and I cross. So, it is an exchange of energy. And when I touch the feet, I'm receiving their blessings. And even the sister, she'll always say, well, I touch feet, bless you, God bless you. But it's receiving this energy and it's this flow of energy. It's kind of like making love, but through a different form of touching. It's that circulation of energy between the teacher and the student. So, mm-hmm. and, I, and I don't do it a lot. Um, I do it probably like, for example, I'm here for two months with them and I'll probably do it two or three times when I, when I see them first when I get initiated by them and when I leave, maybe something like that. You got into all this at a very young age and you know, you're from Australia, Bandai, specifically heavy drinking culture. And I'm just curious, you know, this is for all the young listeners who may aspire to do things that are a little bit outside of the box. How did you integrate into your life with peers who we're interested probably mostly in going out and getting drunk and pursuing those kinds of uh, more superficial outlets for fulfillment. Was that a struggle for you at all? Or you just kind of hung out with probably older people, I imagine, people who were like into the things that you were into? Uh, still, I was still hanging out with people my age, but it wasn't so much a struggle with me because I was always the odd one out and I was always <laughs> owning that. I like wouldn't be scared like I would own it. And even though like my friends would kind of tease me, although they were my friends, they still would like make fun of me that I'm doing weird stuff. Like, I don't know, not wearing shoes at school or whatever it was. I didn't care. I'm that kind of person. I'm an Aquarius rising. So I'm just like, I'll do what I want. <laughs> but I stopped drinking like abnormally early for my culture. Like at like 19 years old, I just never liked alcohol. I was doing drugs until much later, I was using quite a lot of drugs regularly. And it was the meditation, without a doubt, as I said earlier, like I started learning meditate and it just slowly, naturally, I didn't try make it go away. I just started doing less drugs and the relationships, the friendships took a bit longer to leave, but naturally also I started going away from that. And there was definitely a point where, and I see it a lot in young people who learn to meditate particularly of I feel lonely as my friends, but I don't really want to be with them because I don't enjoy that so much. I can't, I want to find my crew. But luckily, you know, Sydney community also has a wonderful conscious community. And now it's much stronger than it was probably over 10 years ago when it, when I kind of made that transition to a more conscious community. I mean, now I don't know about, I'm sure you're into them, but like it's amazing seeing the communities now in Sydney and Australia. Like, I go to these conscious events, like, for example, monthly drumming circle we love. It's like a meetup in the bush. It's 150 people dancing like crazy, partying like crazy. And we see people who come for the party and they're into drugs and alcohol. And sometimes they even bring it. It's not allowed. It's drug and alcohol free. But they're like, wow. like, And they're really amazed and they're really inspired and they, they get open to. So, I think now it's, it's a beautiful thing that's possible.
early experiences with Ayurveda was, I won't say it was traumatic, but it was just, it was very laborious and wasn't simple at all. And you say that you teach patients to effortlessly integrate these techniques into their daily lives so they can thrive. So can you just give a synopsis of what Ayurveda is in a nutshell and how you, how you approach it compared to, I think a lot of doctors, they give way too many things for people to do. I had a whole like a whole mm-hmm. schedule of things that I had to do on a daily basis to supposedly yeah. make it work. But talk talk about your approach. And first of all, what is Ayurveda in your understanding? So Ayurveda is a Sanskrit word. Ayu means life and Veda means knowledge or science. So simply Ayurveda is the science of life. It is a very broad and holistic body of knowledge, which is governed by natural law. So how nature operates in the sense of life, human life, but all creative life. And it teaches how to live life with the most bliss, the most happiness, the most freedom, abundance, and pleasure. There's these four things in Ayurveda. And health, of course, is particularly related with with wealth and abundance aspect, but health is there. So the essence of Ayurveda is through recommendations, through knowledge, which is really the knowledge of how nature operates and how, as we are nature, the human physiology is nature, how that operates. How can you align your physiology with nature to live your human nature? Because it says that every human, every person has perfect health within them. It just has to be enlivened. We have to remind the body of that. And the way to do that is to align that human with nature so that you awaken the human nature. And that's through various ways. Like you can simply say, like aligning with the seasons, aligning with the day, with the sun. This is circadian medicine. So various ways, according to where the person's at, that's how I recommend certain things for them. And all these recommendations, Ayurveda is universal. So it can be integrated to anyone, wherever you are in the world whatever climate you're in, whatever religion you practice, whatever diet you choose to eat, it's principles of how nature operates and how nature should be operating in the human physiology. So, for example, it's like the sun. You look at a day, like the daily routine, as you said earlier, like you've been waking up before the sun because you're jet lagged and you're feeling good from it. Like that's what it says. It says before sunrise is the time of air and space element. And if you wake up with that, you invite that air and space element to your life, which is creativity and clarity and lightness of being. But the more you sleep in past sunrise, it becomes earth element, which we call kapha. And that sticks with you for the day. You get that heaviness, that sluggishness, that slowness of the earth element. So that's like one simple thing is to wake up before sunrise or with the sun. And from those listening, I'm sure you know, when you do that, maybe you had to go to some appointment or you had to exercise class booked or something. You feel a lot more energy that day when you wake up with the sun. But the more you sleep in, even though you're in the bed for longer, you may think you're getting rest because you're in the bed, but you actually feel a lot more sluggish and slow and dull that day. So that's kind of an example of living in tune with natural law. And there's so many things. It's mainly through, I mean, the three pillars of Ayurveda is food. So food is a huge aspect, how to eat in tune with nature, basically local seasonal and eat with the sun. Then there's the second pillar is sleep. And the third pillar 
is called, the Sanskrit word is brahmacharya, which means the regime of creation. So that's how to attune your regime with creativity, which is involving the daily routine, the seasonal routine, as well as sexual energy, that creative energy, how to align with that. So this is through, I, I say through food, through lifestyle, through herbs, and through body treatments is kind of an advanced stage. Or if you can want to do more, delve more, it's easy to take herbs. That's very easy. It's a bit more to shift your diet and it's a bit more to do lifestyle, but it's definitely more to go and take time to whether it's go to India or go to your local Ayurvedic clinic and get some treatments. I've seen people and have had prescriptions of, hey, you just need to spend 10 minutes breathing in this way. Or someone else may say, hey, put pepper in some warm milk and drink that before you go to bed at night. Someone else says you have to hug four people <laughs> throughout your day tomorrow. And it could be all over the board like that in terms of recommendations and prescriptions. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so many things. It's, you know, put oil on this certain part of your body before you go to sleep or look at this. <laughs> it could be, eat, yeah, as you said, certain foods, so many things. I do find that oil application tends to be one of the foundational treatments that gets applied or used with Ayurveda. Can you talk a little bit about why that is the case? What is it about oil and, and, and the body that leads to better, more balance or better health? Absolutely. Like I love oil, so for sure. We are currently facing epidemics of dehydration and dryness. You ask most doctors, even the top doctors who study hydration, proper hydration, I'm talking. Not, they say 100% of people are dehydrated. Furthermore, in Ayurveda, we, we see there's a theory of the five elements. I kind of said some of them earlier, but space, air, fire, water, earth. And these elements are dominant in everything, every human, every plant, every animal, every object, everything. And we have a dominance of the air and space element, which is dryness in our life. You know, our, our lifestyles are very air. It's like movement. It's a lot of movement. Air and space is movement. So we move a lot. We're doing things. We're on the computer. We're on screens. Screens dry us out they, through our retina. They dry our brain out. Lights, artificial lights dry us out. They even dry our skin. Air conditioning, heating, tap water, like bathing in tap water full of chemicals that like we're, we're facing everything of dryness. And that can look like many things. Of course, dry skin, dry hair falling out, but Alzheimer's, dementia, neurodegeneration, these epidemics, it's becoming normal. We think it's normal for our grandparents or our parents to enter old age home. Like, oh yeah, that's fine. He's losing his memory because he's 80, but that's not natural. It's becoming the norm and it's not natural. And what it is, is dry brain. That's what neurodegeneration is. It's that when the, when the myelin sheath is dry, the neurotransmitters can't move well and that person can't think or gets Alzheimer's. And in the gut, it can be experienced as bloating or constipation, hard stool. In the joints, it can be experienced dryness in the joints as joint issues, osteoporosis, degeneration of the joints, degeneration of the bones when the bones become dry. So it's it's a very prevalent thing. And in, even in Ayurveda thousands of years ago, said this dry quality, which we call the vata dosha, which is air and space element, is the most common. Secondary is the fire element, which is pit, we call pitta. And that's things like in imbalanced state, it expresses as hyperacidity, ulcerative colitis, anger, all this frustration, eczema, dermatitis, so many things. And then there's the kapha, which is the earth, which is the earth and water element. So vata or this dryness is, is very dominant. And vata is also the nervous system. 
So for example, putting oil on the body, like giving yourself a massage. So in Ayurveda, I mentioned daily routine. One of the things of daily routine is bathing yourself. And thankfully, most people do that daily. Some people don't, but it's actually a very important thing to be doing daily, to be bathing yourself. But not only should we wash our skin and put water on our body and scrub it, we should also lubricate our skin. We should put oil on our body before our bath or before bathing. The biggest effect is you feel the pacified nervous system. Your skin has more nerve endings than any organ of your body. It's the biggest organ. And when you put oil on your skin and give yourself a massage, you feel completely grounded and pacified. People feel it very tangibly that day. You feel this strength of nervous system. And that's one thing you can do, especially those with anxiety or overactive mind and stress. It helps a lot with that. Why before the bath? Because I I know 90% of people moisturize after the bath, including myself. Should I be doing it both or just before? You can do both, but the first time you apply oil to your body, you have to wash it off after. Because oil is lipophilic, which means it pulls toxins out of the skin as well as even the lymph and the blood and even deeper tissues, especially when you're using Ayurvedic medicated oils. It pulls toxins out of the tissues, especially the skin and the blood to the surface and you have to wash that off. Then once you've done that, you can put on as much as you want in the day. But the first time that you moisturize or even just even just moisturize, but especially if you give yourself an oil massage, definitely you have to wash it off. And you'll feel it like, like have a go and let me know. Like You might feel people, if you leave it on, it's like a bit cloggy. It can clog some energy and some sweat pores and things like that. So that's what the reason we do before bath. The nervous system is one thing and lymphatic drainage is a huge thing. We've got twice the amount of fluid of lymph than blood. So the lymph is the plasma is what eats up toxins. It's like a Pac-Man, takes toxins all throughout our body and brings them to the toilet to be eliminated out. Also, the lymph carries our killer T cells, our immune system. So having good lymphatic circulation, lymphatic drainage optimizes our immunity. And when you give yourself a massage, especially with oil, it really helps move that lymph, helps blood circulation. It's the ultimate anti-aging. Dryness is degeneration, degeneration of brain, degeneration of joints, degeneration of bones. When you see elderly people, as well as you see cancer patients, especially if they're terminal, they're very dry and eventually they dry and shrivel up, disintegrate into the next realm. So it's very good to maintain. Ayurveda is primarily about prevention. It prioritizes to prevent disease or it says maintain health in the healthy. And secondarily, it treats the sick. Because if we can maintain and put more energy towards preventative medicine, we're going to have a much greater disease-free society than if we just only treat sick people. And one of the key preventative methods is what we call abhyanga, which means Ayurvedic oil massage. So that's one thing people can try. You can go to my website, download a free poster on how to give yourself an oil massage. You can use coconut oil in the summer or sesame oil in the winter or coconut oil if you have sensitive skin and just do it before shower. And I've got the short version as well as if you don't have time, just takes one minute to put oil on certain parts of your body because oiliating these vital points is what's going to maintain that lubrication in those areas of the certain orifices. And that's one oil. We can go through other oils also if you want other ways of administering oil. On your website, you said that the most important aspect of treating a patient is the physician, 
Next is importance is the herbs, then the staff helpers, then the patient and their ability to surrender and adhere to the treatment plan. Can you talk a little bit about, about that sequence? Yeah, that, so that's based off a shloka. And uh, what a shloka is in, in Vedic system is it's like a haim or a hymn or a, mm-hmm. or a Vedic verse. And I'm really passionate about having proper sources of knowledge because especially with Ayurveda, a lot of Ayurveda has been lost and misunderstood. When the Mughals came, they took a lot of the knowledge. When the British came, they were chopping off physicians' hands because they were doing the pulse. So I'm into adhering to the Shastras, which are the classical texts, which have these verses, as well as my teachers who have that unbroken lineage of knowledge. So I like shlokas or verses, and one of them is, uh, I can chant it if you want, it's, it's Bishak Dravya Upastara Rogi Para Chatushtayam. So it labels that. So the first is the Bishak, which is the Vedya or the Ayurvedic doctor. Second is the herbs, the Dravya. Third is the technician. And the fourth is the patient. That's the order of what's most important. You need the doctor. You need the physician to have the treatment. That's the most important. You can have the herbs. You can have the patient. You can even have a technician or a staff member that who gives the treatments. But if you don't have the physician guiding, that's what's the most important. And the herbs are secondary most important. And recently in my journey of learning, I'm really learning more about how powerful herbs are and they're very advanced and intelligent beings. And there's other shlokas which say, there's one which says, diseases from past life are rectified by, and it lists all these things. And the first one is herbs. And the next one is doing what's called yaga, which is like a sacrifice. And then one is doing meditation, one is doing mantra repetition, but the first is herbs. So that's secondary. And then, so these are, it's not really one is more important than the, it is in that order, but it's saying these are the four things required to treat. You need those four things. You need a physician, you need herbs, you need a staff member to help, and you need a, but the Vedya, the doctor can act as a staff and you need the patient. And not only Mm -hmm. you need a patient, then it goes into the four things of what each of those need. And for example, one of the things that the patient needs is to completely surrender. And that's a huge thing to not think about. You know, we ideally don't want patients thinking about their health and analyzing it and Googling and like, well, why are you giving me this? It's really just focus on your health rather than your disease. Enjoy your life. Go out and let me take care of you. That's what's the beauty of having a physician who you can just surrender to and trust and not need to think about your health, not need to think about your disease. Someone who can just not even question, you just do it. And that's a big journey I learned because I'm very intellectual and I was learning with the doctor while receiving treatment at the same time in my time in India. And I, he had to really teach me like I could not ask questions about myself. I had to just, if he says something I do, I don't question, I don't think about my own, I don't analyze myself. And it's very clear in Ayurveda for the physician to not heal themselves. They have to give it to someone, another Vedya. If someone doesn't have access to you or Dr. Raju, how do you identify uh, Ayurvedic doctor who you would potentially surrender to and let them kind of take control of your healing? Good question. Well, everyone does because you can do it online consultations. Mm-hmm. But if that's still inaccessible, it's a really interesting dance because healthy skepticism is required, for example, certainly in the allopathic medical system because if you just surrendered then the physician would be saying chop off your leg or Mm. let me 
take this reconstruct your shoulder when if you do if, rather you could practice skepticism say actually do i need to get a shoulder reconstruction and surgery or if i just do some massage and change my diet and lifestyle and do some physio and things maybe i can fix it because a lot of the time there's inappropriate medical interventions a lot of the time so it is required definitely in the western medical system to practice that but if you can find a doctor that you can surrender to and i guess it's you have to use your intuition somewhat to see if you can i mean it's a practice anyway mm-hmm. to do with all physicians i think you know even when i see other practitioners you know i can't occasionally see a chiropractor in the past i've dabbled in other things and i've had that approach of sweet like i'm here especially with you can kind of tell it are they coming from a good place are they genuine i guess it it requires a bit of intuition to tell should you be mm-hmm. surrendering or should you have a bit of skepticism yeah i say the same with meditation like you know you got to feel a connection you have to feel an inherent connection yeah. kind of like what you described with your teacher you had said that being in their presence de-excites your nervous system and makes you feel yeah. at peace and and all of that and i think that there's an element to that where your body will tell you hey this is this is who you need to be working with at this point in time you mentioned earlier eating with the sun and i just want to spend a little time talking about the sun you know like what's the ayurvedic thinking on sunscreen is the sun dangerous how do you eat with the sun talk a little bit about that sun's not only dangerous the sun is a divine being and if we can mm-hmm. learn to harness the healing power of the sun and commune with it then we can live in harmony and greatly benefit from the health benefits that it has to offer. Yes, the sun can burn you and cause skin cancer even, which is by the way very rare. Most skin cancers are not caused by the sun. First of all, let's let's talk about the skin and the sun. Sun exposure is very important. It's part of the daily routine and vitamin D is very very important. We know this from modern science. You have vitamin D. There's only two hormones which are in every single cell of the body. One is vitamin D and it's actually a hormone and the second is thyroid. So vitamin D is you can see studies linking vitamin D to everything. And it's really interesting with me working a lot in India and, and with a lot of lecturing in India and Indians are very scared of the sun. They don't want to get their skin darker and as well it's harder to get sun exposure in India due to the modesty of clothes on and stuff. But we need to be getting sun and you need to gradually according to your skin type shift and habituate to that because for example me i can lie in the sun for for 6 hours without sunscreen or anything and not get burnt but a scottish man who's very white and pale can only last 10 minutes so and i've worked with scottish i've got one particular patient who i'm very proud of and he was so white he, he couldn't go for more than 5 minutes in the sun and he got a beautiful tan and tans are healthy because you have like sun calluses on the, on your skin like skin calluses but for the sun and how much does it affect you if you're getting red and burning that's too much but if you're getting pink that's positive your your it means your red blood cells and your porphyrins are coming to the skin surface to absorb the uv light which gives you energy you are like a plant we are like plants we are photosynthesis we photosynthesize we are 99.92% water on a molecular level so we are bodies of water we get the sun shining on us on our skin in our eyes it charges us up with with energy with prana with cellular energy and it's important to get that for so many reasons vitamin d for energy 
for the water structure in our body. We know water loves light. You purify water with UV light. It does a lot to our system. So it's really important to get sun in a safe, moderate way. You know, if you, if you are sensitive, you can start in the early morning or the late evening when it's not so strong in the middle of the day, if it's summer, especially. But generally, we want to be increasing it. Everybody kind of says it gives a general thing of 48 minutes a day to be precise, but about 15, 45 minutes is a healthy amount. But of course, if you're, if it's summer and you're going to burn after five minutes, then you slowly bring sunscreen is generally not recommended. First of all, most sunscreens have chemicals. And second of all, even the natural sunscreens, they will block the UV. And whenever we start blocking UV, we start getting an altered spectrum of sunlight hitting our skin. We don't want an altered spectrum of sunlight hitting our skin. We want a holistic spectrum. The sun is such a complex spectrum. It has so many frequencies and we want that in its wholeness hitting our skin then we're going to absorb its wholeness. But as soon as we start using sunscreen or even a window, that's also going to block UV light. We get this altered spectrum that is not as harmonious with our skin, and that's going to cause some reaction. The cause for skin cancer and melanoma is impaired skin physiology. So how does your skin metabolize whatever it gets, whether it's sun, whether it's a chemical, whether it's a lotion, whether it's pollution, how does it metabolize? And we have to have good skin metabolism. And one way is what we talked about earlier, Abhyanga, Ayurvedic oil massage is very helpful to improve your skin physiology so you don't burn and so you metabolize the sun. Well, I wrote an article called Why Are Sunbathers Still Vitamin D Deficient? Something along that lines. And it was looking at these sunbathers who were still vitamin D deficient. They were getting a lot of sun. They had great tans, but they weren't metabolizing the sun rays into cholesterol, which converts to vitamin D. So that's the skin physiology. We call that pitta in Ayurveda. It's the fire element that lives in us in our skin. That's which transforms and metabolizes. And rather than using sunscreen, if you are sensitive, use clothes and shade. And then you can deviate throughout. If you are working in the field and it's very hot and there's no shade and it's too hot for clothes, then sure, use sunscreen a good one without chemicals. And coconut oil is a great thing. People kind of fear coconut oil. They think they're going to burn more, but no, it actually has SPF and protects the skin. So that's the skin part. And the eating part is huge. We have this thing in our gut called digestive fire. It's the center of our body. The home of our body is our gut, is our intestines. And that has a metabolic fire. And that not only processes foods, but also water and drinks and air, things that are in the air, even even sensory impressions is metabolized by our fire. Like how do we see something if we're watching a horror movie together and and you're like really scared, like you're like freaking out, but I'm like in bliss and euphoria. It's the same movie. We have the same vision, but it's how you're metabolizing it, how your fire is. So, we have this inner fire, this digestive fire, and it's really a key factor in Ayurveda is how we metabolize everything in life and how we transform it. And that fire is regulated by the sun. So when the sun is the strongest, our digestive fire particularly is the strongest. So midday or lunch should be the main meal. Dinner, when our fire is down, when the sun is down, we should have the lightest meal. And that is because when we sleep, our body is regenerating. We know sleep's important, right? It was the second pillar of health in Ayurveda. Sleep is for detoxifying the liver. It's for regenerating liver cells. It's for 
regulating hormones. It's the main time for hormonal regulation. And it's the main time for production and absorption of micronutrients, things like vitamins, minerals. It's not for digesting food. If you'd like have a big steak and chips that night, your body's like, why are you giving me this to digest? I'm meant to be detoxifying the liver and making melatonin and regulating hormones. So when I consult in New York City and Mumbai in India, just that simple recommendation of shifting the biggest meal to lunch shifts their health conditions and their symptoms and their complaints because their body can actually process the things which are going on and stop getting more influx of toxins. Because if you're going to be eating a heavy late dinner, you're filling up the trash can more and more. You're not getting time to empty it. So eating with the sun is is important. And then you can go into the divinity of the sun as well. <laughs> Leave it at that. <laughs> Right now, sugar has been equated to the devil, but you say something is worse than sugar that we all consume, especially if you eat out a lot. Yeah. Where did you see it? I didn't know I wrote that. You <laughs> <laughs> talked about oils, rancid oils. Yeah. Yeah, it is like rancid oils, which you find in takeaway foods, even high quality restaurants, seed oils, oils smoked or heated above their smoke point, they become rancid, which congests the liver and they stick in the liver for a long time. Whether the sugars, for example, candy, chocolate, jelly beans, like the worst sugars you can think of, they're bad, but they cause an insulin spike in the blood and they'll stay there for a few hours and then they'll leave. They're definitely bad for diabetics and can cause serious issues. But these oils, they can stick for months. They can stick for 10 months. They can stick for a year. So, they're much harder to get out and they also contribute to dryness because when we're eating, for example, a deep fried sashimi or deep fried vegetables at your high class Japanese restaurant, these oils actually dry out the body. And when the body is so dry, like we're seeing a big thing right now of epidemics of fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver. And we're now going up to the grade two and grade three. So, people are getting fatty liver when they're not drinking alcohol. This used to be unheard of, but it's because of these oils. And when they're deprived of proper, they're not only putting these toxic oils in them, but they're becoming deprived of proper lubrication. And one of the things of lubrication, which we didn't mention earlier, is proper internal fats, like, for example, ghee is the best or coconut oil or certain animal fats. When you're not getting that, your liver has to produce its own fat, and that's when it gets fatty liver. So, there's a lot of issues with these takeaway foods, restaurant foods from, and it is hard. Like, look, I, I love eating out also. I do it occasionally. I love pizza, but it's occasional for me. And mm-hmm. if you're doing it even three times a week, even is, is, a, is a lot, especially if they're not using oils. It's, it's some rest, it is possible to find restaurants with good oils, but it, it's really not easy. So, mm-hmm. if you can uh, get food which doesn't have oil, but Make sure you're getting good fats in your diet if you're going to do that, if you really eat out. I actually eat out quite, quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, get good fats. Try to avoid rancid oils as much as possible. Self-massage with coconut oil or some other kind of Ayurvedically prescribed oil. You mentioned sipping on hot water. You wrote about yeah. sipping on hot water and what's the deal with that? If anyone had to take anything home from today's podcast, it, it's sip hot water. It's such a powerful purification technique. When you wash mm-hmm. grease off dirty dishes with hot water, it comes off much easier. Similarly, in the mm-hmm. intestines, when you sip hot water, it, it scrubs intestinal villi and it flushes it. 
So if you have some, for example, pizza and you feel a bit of indigestion, maybe some bloating or you feel some hardness, just sip hot water. You probably feel that go. Or if you have a headache, just sip hot water and it should go. Because not only does it kind of scrub toxins and flush it, but it also dilates channels, which means it opens them. That's why you have a headache, sip hot water, it opens the capillaries, it make, releases that pressure. Mm. You have menstrual pain, sip hot water, it will help dilate the reproductive channels. It's a very powerful technique. It's also an important way to hydrate the body. As I was saying, like we're not getting properly hydrated and the answer is not to drink more water. It's not to drink more water. That's just putting water in your gut. We need intracellular hydration. We need to get water from our gut into our bloodstream and then into our cells. Even if we're very dehydrated, we go to hospital because we're very sick and they give us the IV of saline water to hydrate us. It's still only in the blood. We need to get it from into the cells. And one good way is sipping hot water because it opens that channels. It delivers that water more effectively. And of course- Does tea, does tea count or coffee or is it just got to be tea plain counts, hot water? But plain hot water will do the whole body. Like mm-hmm. you're drinking green tea now. So that might go specifically just to the liver or to the pancreas. It helps with that. Helps with the insulin and the pancreas. But or lemon in hot water will go to the liver or ginger in hot water will go to the digestive system, which is great and it has its applications. But primarily if we stick to hot water, plain hot water, it has a beautiful wholesome effect on all the channels of our body. Beautiful. And then eat the largest meal of the day. Well, what's your thinking on intermittent fasting? So that's a big trend these days as well. Yeah, there's a another shloka. I'll just put in some Sanskrit from fun because I love Sanskrit. It's, it says, langana parama oshadam. And langana means light. It's where the where light, like lightening therapy. So fasting and parama is like supreme. And oshadam means medicine. So it says fasting is the best medicine or the most supreme medicine, but it's how you do it. And there's so many different levels of fasting. You know, what are you fasting on? Are you doing only water? Are you doing dry? Are you doing fruit only? Are you doing liquids only? So the general, I guess the most important principle for fasting is for it to be doing in a rhythm. So for example, if you're getting intermittent fast, so maybe you're doing lunch and dinner only and you're missing breakfast, do that regularly. Don't sometimes have breakfast and sometimes not. If you're going to fast, do a, a juice fast a day, or you're going to do water fast, do that regularly. So in cultures, you look at, you know, Judaism, they have the one year, Yom Kippur one day a year. The Muslims, they have the Ramadan. The Indians, they have the Ekadashi, which is the 11th day of every moon cycle twice a month. So it's all in rhythms. Like for me, I fast every Tuesday in a rhythm. I get to Tuesday, my body knows it. It does not crave food. My digestive acids know it. there's no secretion today. So rhythm is really important. Intermittent fasting, Ayurveda says the ideal is two meals a day. Three is for sick people or for people who want disease. Because when you start having three, you start getting too much toxic buildup of undigested food. And two doesn't mean you can have, for example, a milk or a coffee in the morning if you wanted to, to miss your breakfast. And fasting should be comfortable. You should not strain. So move towards it. For example, you want to fast maybe one day a month or one day a week, fortnight. Or, you know, start with maybe fruit only and then eat after sunset or start with liquids and don't go too radical. You can slowly move there. It's always better when adopting new habits and trying new things. Final question about this. Why should you not taste your food while you're cooking? There's two reasons. I'll give you both the more spiritual reason and the digestive reason. 
the spiritual reason, first of all, is when we are cooking, we're offering something to a higher self, to a higher divinity, whether that is most of the time within ourselves, especially if we're cooking for other people. It's a very beautiful act of, we call it in the Vedas, yagya. It's like a surrender of our energy and our resources to a higher self, whether it's our friend we're cooking for, especially if we're cooking for like a, a newborn, someone who just gave birth, or for our mother, or, f- or for my- ourself. We're offering this to someone, and we want to give it with in its fullness. We don't want to kind of take away from it. We, it's like when we do puja ceremonies, we don't smell the flowers before we offer it to the god. Similarly, we want to we give it in its fullness. And also, digestive-wise, you can imagine someone cooking and they're just tasting the food as they go. It's starting the digestive process. It's already like, it's confusing it a bit. It's like a bit of acid here and a bit of digestive enzymes here. Like we want to just stop after we've cooked, sit for just a little bit, whether it's five seconds, do whatever you want, say a prayer, feel your pulse is a great time to before you eat because it completely activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest rather than the flight or fight, which is probably active especially if you're cooking in a rush. I used to cook in a rush all the time when I was full in my clinic and I had to quickly cook and I could feel my flight or fight activated and I had to stop before my meal and I had to take a minute or less Mm. and turn on the rest and digest. So, giving that full digestive strength to the meal when it's meal time, not kind of having it in little bits, then we won't have proper digestion and proper appetite. I always like to sort of wrap up with this question and really curious to hear what your response is to it, which is, how are you thinking about success these days as an Ayurvedic practitioner who's, you know, very much living in an alignment with those principles? It's becoming less about serving masses mm-hmm. and more about finding a, a bit more moderation in my own life in, her, in terms of how I enjoy myself and my time. But at the same time, giving people, as many people as possible, but even it's more about the quality of the healing. That's for me, success is to what capacity and what extent can I support people to heal themselves and support them to shift themselves into a more happy and healthy person. That's what success means. The more I can do that for people, that goes beyond the body, that goes to support them in their spiritual expansion, spiritual evolution. Talk about some of your offerings. I know you have an Ayurvedic course, 30-something modules. There's a lot of this covered in that course. People learn how to self-pulse and yeah. all the principles. Yeah, self, self-pulse is fun. It's, it's actually by my teachers. We just offer it on our website, and that's mm-hmm. just teaching that technique. And the nutrition course is called The Essence of Ayurvedic Nutrition because it shows Ayurveda is not eat this food or not that vegetable or eat that grain. It's eat with the principles of nature. So, it's how can you, my, my kind of intention for that course is for people to come across any food substance and know by understanding the food in its qualities and in its elements, how to apply it therapeutically. So, you know, if pizza is heavy, congesting, damp, like cheese, I mean, is, is heavy, congesting, damp, cold, those are the qualities. So, if you have a cold, if you have a cough, if your baby is sick, you don't want to give cheese. It's going to increase that. You give more pungent, like black pepper. It's going to burn that up. So, 
stuff like that and eating with the sun and all other principles of Ayurvedic nutrition, which you can apply to any diet you choose. Yeah. So those are the, I think those are the main only courses we have. I offer online consultations as well, where my aim is to make people self-sufficient in their health. So typically you don't stick around, like we don't do too many consultations. It's you know sometimes one, two, three, sometimes four, check in later if something comes up, but kind of give you things that, and you know, about the effortlessly integrating things like Ayurveda is the science of life. You should do this for life. It's not something which you don't, it's a strain or it's, it's like a discipline, which is hard. It may require some discipline in the beginning, but it's a way of living and understanding how nature operates within nature and within the human physiology allows you to create your own lifestyle, your own diet towards perfect health. So that's kind of what I aim to do in a consultation. Yeah, we got clinic in Australia and we tour and we'll be doing some cool stuff next year, some international courses in Australia. I want to thank you for coming on and acknowledge you for just all the leaps you had to take to get to where you are today and and all the studying and all the passing of the tests, <laughs> those old school <laughs> tests that your guru placed upon you. And, and it definitely shows in not just in your knowledge, which is obviously, you know, pr- very profound, but just in the way you are, your energy and your presence. And I can feel all that coming through the, <laughs> the, the Zoom. So I, 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 I look forward to crossing paths with you again very soon, hopefully. And, uh, nice. and yeah, man, keep, keep spreading the wisdom and shining the light. And thank you again for your service. And you too, Light. Like, thank you for spreading that and, and having me on your show and sharing this journey together to support mm-hmm. and enliven this wisdom and knowledge within everyone. And like, even though we're separate and hardly speak, like we're doing this together mm-hmm. with everyone else. So thank you, brother. Beautiful. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Dylan Smith. For more information about Ayurveda and inspiration, make sure to follow Dylan on social media at Vital Veda. That's V-I-T-A-L-V-E-D-A. And of course, I'll drop links to everything else that Dylan and I discussed in the show notes on my website, lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archives of interviews with many other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose, such as Ava DuVernay, Young Pueblo, Ed Milet, Stephen Pressfield, and many more. You can even search the interviews by subject matter in case you want to hear more episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or who've overcome financial struggles, or who've navigated health challenges. You can get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on YouTube. If you want to put a face to a story, just search Light Watkins Podcast on YouTube, and you'll see the entire playlist of past episodes. And if you didn't already know, I post the raw, unedited version of each podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type who likes hearing all of the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of each episode, you can listen to all of that by joining my online community, which is called The Happiness Insiders. It's at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only will you have access to those unedited versions of the podcast, but you'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge, along with other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. And finally, to help me bring you the best guests possible, it would go a long way if you can take 10 seconds to rate this podcast. 
All you do is you glance down at your screen, click on the name of the podcast, scroll down past a few previous episodes. You'll see a space with five blank stars. Tap the one all the way on the right and you've left a rating. And if you feel inspired to go the extra mile, leave a review with the one episode that you recommend a new listener start with as an introduction to this podcast. It could be the episode that had the biggest impact on you personally. So thank you very much for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. It's very important. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.